If, is this going to like keep people regular? Like, are they going to notice anything? What's <laughs> the suit? Hello, everyone. I'm Morgan, co-founder of Primal Kitchen, and you're listening to the Primal Kitchen Podcast. Today, I'm interviewing two entrepreneurs who have disrupted the natural food space with an unlikely combination, gut health and soda. Ben Goodwin and David Lester founded Olipop in 2018 with the intention of creating a carefully crafted tonic that has a nostalgic, wholesome taste less sugar, and hardworking ingredients like plant fiber and prebiotics with every sip. Not only have they worked with top microbiome researchers to create this specialized formula, they're currently doing clinical trials on how their soda really does make an impact on your body's gut bugs. Before we get the entire scoop on this entrepreneurial journey, a quick reminder that any and all opinions and views shared by hosts and guests on this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the view of Primal Kitchen or its affiliates or parent company. Hi, guys. Hey. Welcome. So excited to have you guys here. I have to say I'm drinking an Olipop right now. It's delicious. Um, So well done. Um, Dying to know how you guys met, how you started the company. Give me the background. Yeah, sure. I guess I can kick kick it off. Um, You know, I've been a product developer and beverage entrepreneur at this point for 15 years. And the kind of uh, nexus of the of the focus really came from my own health experience. You know, I grew up eating a standard American diet and was relatively overweight as a byproduct of that uh, in my childhood. And then in my teenage years, kind of just had the epiphany that this is not going to create a good life outcome, to put it, put it mildly. So uh, I really switched a lot of things around. I lost 60 pounds in less than a year. Um, and I really started focusing on nutrition. Uh, just to make sure I was growing and and kind of ex- exploring things, and eventually, I kind of had the distinct uh, observation that it that how I was treating my body and what I was putting into my body wasn't just affecting my energy or my weight, it was also really impacting my kind of emotional stability and my cognitive function. Uh, and I became somewhat uh, as like a pretty personal development oriented and oriented person. I became kind of obsessed with like what is the relationship between what we're putting into our, ourselves and kind of for lack of a better term, our consciousness uh, and was interested in kind of going down that path. And eventually I actually dropped out of college uh, because I had a, a mentor who won a Supreme court case by himself, with no legal representation. It's a whole long, whole long story, but basically got inspired, drop out of college and get right into uh, entrepreneurialism. Wait, back uh, up there. Sorry. What were you just saying about Supreme yeah. Court? You have to like expand upon that a little bit more. Well, yeah. Well, sometimes I mean, it's kind of a longer narrative structure, but more or less. So when I was like 19, 20, I was throwing raves and warehouse parties, as you do. Uh, and I threw this one particular one and, and saw this guy in the crowd at one point. And my brain just made this little mental note of, of uh, huh, it's an interesting looking guy. That's pretty much it. I had a bunch okay. of other stuff to do. And then two weeks later, I see him at Whole Foods and my brain goes, there's that guy. So I go over, I start talking to him uh, and kind of the short of the, of the long is uh, he's taking over this local 1500 person event venue, needs a co-executive producer, wants me to come in and interview. I do, you know, whatever I get the job, but kind of what's more important is uh, he's a gay black civil rights activist that won a Supreme Court case by himself with no legal representation in the early 1980s. Uh, he's passed away now, but his name is Edward Lawson. And it's the reason why it's illegal for police to ask you for your ID without probable cause. So, you know, you have somebody like that in your life, wow. kind of a mentor, mentorship wow. capacity. It's going to kind of, you know, switch your priorities and your viewpoint up a little bit. And I was also very inspired by the, like, I'm not anti-education. Uh, 
but I was pretty inspired by the fact that this person didn't have a lawyer, didn't have a traditional legal background, actually went to the Berkeley Law Library, studied law directly, and then kind of took direct action around the whole thing. And I was, I was, yeah, I found it, I found it really inspiring. Uh, I didn't really, a lot of the mechanics, and again, I didn't grow up with a lot of cash either. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go through school now. I'm going to have this massive debt. I'm not really even sure why I'm in school. I just want to get directly into creating my own, my own thing. So that was a scary decision, but ultimately thus far, it's, it's more or less worked out. Um, and, yeah. And then a friend of mine was actually starting a kombucha company and this was kombucha was obviously a lot. That was 16 years ago at this point. Yeah. That was much earlier in the industry. Uh, I did kind of the, the product developments with the op stuff around that, but that's- Are you allowed to share the name of the kombucha company with us? Yeah, it's closed down now. They got, uh, they couldn't really bounce back okay. after the whole alcohol thing, but it was called Kombucha Botanica. Okay. It's a really cool company. Like uh, we helped pioneer kombucha, Whole Foods Kombucha Bar with them. Um, so at, the, at its heyday, I think we were doing some interesting stuff, but, and I was there for about two years. But that during that time, I learned what the microbiome is, which probably most of your listeners know what the microbiome is. But in case they don't, it's all the non-human microorganisms in, out, in, on, and around your body. And they're obviously disproportionately concentrated in your digestive tract uh, and have a pretty material systemic impact on all sorts of different aspects of your function, including digestive, immune neurotransmitter, hormonal, like they affect a lot of, it it affects a lot of different areas of the body. And particularly the the thing that struck me was the brain gut axis. So, you know, this idea that you produce the vast majority of your neurotransmitters in your large intestines via your microbiome uh, and your hormones for that matter. And it has a pretty substantial effect uh, on kind of emotional and cognitive functioning, which is then what, you know, I created the linkage between that and my own experience, the light bulb went off. And, and then I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to more or less pursue, uh, pursue with my, my life. And there's, a, there's also a ton of data, you know, obviously around the kind of state that the country is in, in terms of its health. I mean, I just looked at the stat the other day, 37% of the United States is either diabetic or pre-diabetic. Um, and research coming out of uh, UCSF uh, basically is indicating that 88% of Americans qualify for having some sort of metabolic dysfunction. Uh, and the eight primary kind of met- pathways that either flip those systems on so they're working correctly uh, or turn them into a dis- disordered state, they're not really addressable at a root cause level through medical, traditional medical intervention or, or pharmacology. They're act- but they are all addressable through what we consume. So from like a whole range of different angles, uh, there's a lot of kind of validation uh, for the approach that we're taking, but the uh, the the microbiome is really the part that uh, motivated me and kind of continued me on my journey of what is this relationship between what we're consuming and how it affects our consciousness. I love it. And so you worked for the kombucha company, and then what? How how long? Yeah. So I worked. With it, I worked. I worked with Kombucha Botanica two years. Uh, eventually left that and started doing a bunch of kind of a sort of uh, freelance product development because I realized I had a knack for it and I wanted to learn how to make a bunch of different things. Um, I eventually got a little bit dissatisfied with that because I was just like, yeah, you're a guy in your early 20s living in California making natural products. So I felt like I was making kind of high-end esoteric products for people who didn't need more high-end esoteric products. Uh, it wasn't really having the level of social impact that I was hoping for. Uh, so eventually stopped that. And- back into beverage, um, actually spent four years uh, on an R&D project 
uh, around waterkeeper fermentation, working with a microbiologist and organic chemist. We did, I mean, that's a whole other long story of many hundreds of different scientific tests to get to this outcome. And near the end of that process, um, you know, I had been looking for a business partner for about three years. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm a bit of a perfectionist around it, went through a lot of different iterations. And then finally, as the R&D process was coming to a close, met David, um, as he was just in a let, obviously he can communicate around his own background, but he had just, he was leaving uh, about a decade of tenure at Diageo. And we hit it off within two weeks, we shook hands. And we've been working together almost 10 years since. So, And did you guys meet at like some bar or something exciting that you were promoting or Whole Foods or where'd you guys meet? University Avenue in Palo Alto. I love it. Okay, great. (laughs) All right. So David, let's transition. Give us your background. 10 years at Diageo, man. That's cool. What were you working on? How'd you get here? Yeah, I, yeah. So as Ben said, I I was, I kind of went straight out of college into, um, you know, graduate program at Diageo. I did kind of four years in London, um, roughly the same amount of time in Sydney and Australia, and then um, and then latterly in Sao Paulo in, in Brazil. So it was, you know, a cool experience. I, I think, you know, a great company. And I was split between sort of, you know, brand marketing and innovation, which for us was like launching products. So it was kind of interesting training wheels for startup and and entrepreneurial CPG because I had to, you know, go through a navigate process, present, you know, business case that got torn apart by executive teams. Um, Yeah. Everything we launched failed. So (laughs) as tends to be the case. And so you just able to see why things fail, you know, it's kind of become, after you've done 10 of them, there's only so many things that can go wrong. So you start to see, you know, some patterns in those things. Um, Yeah. And I think that helps a little bit with some of the, you know, short shortcuts that we've taken um on you know on various things so um yeah i you know we've done 10 years i i traveled around i sort of used the agio as um a bit of a travel agency as well and you know to see the world (laughs) and um yeah i remember kind of sitting in a meeting room in colombia um talking about you know tripling the size of whiskey over the next um you know five years in latin america and, and just realized i didn't care that much whether we did it or not and um yeah I, I grew up in a pretty working class area in the northwest of england and my mom was a teacher my dad worked for the council um i saw them in careers where they had really meaningful impact on people's lives and and i i wanted to i think you know candidly i i knew what i didn't want to do i, I didn't really know what i i did want to do um, so yeah, pretty naively, I just kind of, my wife is American. She wanted to move back to the States. So I said, great, I get to pick the place. I'd, I'd never been to San Francisco before, but I knew it was kind of entrepreneurial. Um, I like the idea of kind of access to nature and seemed like an adventure. So I was like, Hey, let's go to Northern California. Maybe I'll start a business. And, um, you know, so my boss at the time said, look, if, if your mind's made up that you're leaving, you might want to speak to this guy. He's looking for a business partner. And, um, you know, that turned out to be Ben. And, um, you know, as Ben said, we met, you know, at a cafe in Palo Alto. He had, you know, a bag of sodas that, that he'd kind of made in a soda stream bottle. And, um, <laughs> you know, it was just kind of super inspiring conversation. You know, it was like exactly what I was looking for. It just my mind blew my mind. And um, you know, his passion, his dedication to the space. Um, and I, I didn't know anything about gut microbiome or, or that at the time. And um, 
you know, I came back from this meeting. I think I actually had a job offer from like an innovation consultancy or something at the time, which probably was paying me a salary, I think equivalent to what I'm paying myself now. But, um, you know, I got back from that meeting and my wife, he was quite excited about the prospect of us both working for the first time and meeting for lunch in downtown San, San Francisco when, you know, I oh, uh, damn, you're going to take, you know, you're going to go work with this guy, aren't you? And I said, yeah, um, yeah, I think I'm going to go and go and do this with Ben. So yeah, it's been a really interesting journey for us. I mean, I've learned a ton about myself, grown as an individual, um, you know, learned a lot from Ben, um, learned a lot from the entrepreneurial experience and, um, yeah, here, here we are, you know, nearly a decade later. I love it. You guys founded the company a decade ago. Is that right? No, so that was the prior. That was the prior venture that was kind of it was a ferment, okay. more so probably called Dolly Pop. Yeah, so we sold that venture in late 2016, okay. uh, and then after that, you know, you know, it was kind of like a going through a, an entire uh, cycle with a beverage company is pretty taxing. <laughs> I think is the mild way to, to, to yeah. describe it, and we kind of weren't totally sure what we wanted to do on the other side. Um, do we want to go after it again? Because we feel like there's more kind of meat on the bone for this, for this kind of mission. Do we think we can do it better and, and ultimately decided to do it better and, um, and, and do it, do it again with more robustness. Uh, and, you know, so I kind of went back to the science to say like, all right, I've been focusing for a while now on probiotics and fermented kind of technology. And while I still you know believe in that, let's see what's going on. And I saw a pretty material shift had had kind of occurred in the microbiome science, especially in the last kind of like five years, uh, where you know some of the consumer probiotic options really weren't kind of delivering against what the hope and expectation were for them. Um, especially you start getting these like stabilized spore forms, and you start getting these formulas with like just one one strain of of probiotic, and you know it's a whole long th- and there's there's these meta-analysts about, uh, you know, recovery from antibiotic use and do the, do the bugs actually graft in your digestive tract? And so it's kind of like, all right, that's probably not the direction. Uh, and there was simultaneously this track of research looking at indigenous hunter-gatherers, uh, which, you know, are basically groups of people who are still alive and living in different kind of more, I guess, called rural or tribal areas, consuming hunter-gatherer diets that uh, human beings have evolved to consume over time, you know, to the tune of hundreds of thousands or millions of years, depending how you, you know, classify the qualifications. But, uh, but those were also the diets that our microbiomes had evolved to be most in sync with. And the results, you know, basically on direct and translational research, were really indicating that actually dietary intervention was the most kind of sustainable and effective way to shift over people's microbiome, digestive, and therefore systemic health. Uh, and what I really try to do is look at the research and say, okay, like what are the big chunks that are present in these indigenous diets that are missing from industrialized diets and kind of broke it, ended up breaking it down into these three categories. So fiber prebiotics, which most prebiotics are comprised of fiber, but not all of them. Uh, and then nutritional diversity, um, and basically industrialized consumers on average get about five to 10% of all three of those buckets that these indigenous hunter-gatherers uh, get. And when, again, when they do translational research and they just see people's diets decline uh, into an industrialized diet or they take uh, industrialized folks and give them a more fiber-rich, prebiotic-rich diet, 
uh, and in a more diverse diet, they see their microbiome and overall health improve quite dramatically. So those ended up being the kind of functional buckets that I knew I wanted to focus on. There's also really good research uh, and reg- and research that was approved by the FDA and EFSA, um, kind of in- you know indicating some roots there that made a lot of sense from a clinical perspective, and that ended up kind of getting wrapped up in the in the functional blend, which we call OliSmart, and we now actually have completed two clinical trials around, and then we're we're lining up for some more, which I'm very excited about. This is uh, so like cool to me because. I- how do the hell do you actually like can do a clinical trial? Like, do you partner with the university or like what is the what's the background here? Yeah, so it's not a simple. It's obviously not a simple process, um, and it's and it's like you know I could do a whole class just on this. I'll try to keep it keep it as consolidated as as possible. I mean, the approach that the approach that we we took um, is you know I, I literally got in a car or a plane and I went out and visited a bunch of these different uh, academic institutions and uh, researchers who were part of or leading those departments that I thought were particularly exceptional and kind of luminaries in their field because what you want to be careful about you know when when you're talking about like research inside of a inside of a company that is a health product right so there's a bunch of different tiers. Yeah, you can access. Yeah. So some businesses, you know, maybe their suppliers done some research, there's some research hypothetically out there in the world. uh, And then they say like, oh, well, it has this ingredient or whatever, whatever. But the issue is, it oftentimes when research is done, it's done on a very specific format of the ingredient or ingredient mix. um, And it's kind of done under very specific conditions. So you don't necessarily know if those conditions are going to be replicated in your specific mix or in your specific product. You know, the other thing that happens often is the business the, the few businesses that are willing to go out and actually study their formula um they'll sometimes go to an independent lab and independent labs can be fine but uh, again this is data out of ucsf the the in incidences of in these independent industry-backed labs giving positive results on the research is about 38 percent higher on average so if you really want to do something that's gold standard um, you need to have good people at the helm who are willing to design solid studies. And then you need to be doing those studies in, uh, you know, highly credible academic environments. Yeah. And if you get that combination correct, then you actually can do a high quality study on your actual uh, product, or your functional formula. And that's what we did. So, and so you know, what are the studies trials, yeah. saying? Like, what's, what are we learning about Olipop from these clinical trials? Yeah. So the first two studies we did uh, were one was headed, headed by Steve Lindemann, who's the head of the complex carbohydrates division at Purdue. And so that first study was done at Purdue. Uh, the other one was led by Dr. Joseph Petrosino and Rob Britton, who, I mean, they're all doctors. I don't know. I'm intermittently assigning the tag doctor. But anyway, by Joseph Petrosino and Rob Britton at Baylor, and they run the microbiology department at Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, they were both in vitro studies. So okay. that's by design. This was, you know, yeah. yeah, they're early. They're early. I mean, Baylor's got a really interesting one because they have one of the most sophisticated uh, kind of gut replication in vitro systems in the, in the world at this point. But, you know, the, the net net, and we tested one can a day equivalent for a month and two cans a day equivalent for a month. Um, and actually, we also did, we tested just the fiber and prebiotics by themselves. And then we also tested the full Ollie Smart blend, so the, the fiber, prebiotics, and botanicals uh, all together. And we did see better results with the inclusion of the botanicals. That was important for me to do because there's more pre-existing research that exists behind fiber and prebiotics 
where some of these botanicals are more kind of folk medicine or they just they just have less kind of qualified Western research behind them. We have a very uh, cool and special way of ex- uh, extracting them, uh, which makes them pretty potent. But I wanted to have some data that there was actually material difference uh, when we included the botanicals and when we didn't. So the, the three basic results we saw consistently. And we saw the both of these, or we saw all of these results irrespective of the micro underlying microbiome uh, composition of the donor and irrespective of the, of the diet that they consumed. So we saw an increase in beneficial microbial diversity, which is awesome. Uh, and then specifically as a part of that, uh, we basically were able to determine that uh, Olipop in these tests were what's called strongly bifidogenic. So bifidobacterium is a family of bacteria. Um, you know, it's a very well-studied family of bacteria. It's very important bacteria. In fact, uh, uh, bifidobacterium are actually in vaginal birth or passed down from the mother to the infant. Uh, and then there are specific, what's called human milk oligosaccharides, but basically they're just prebiotics that exist in breast milk that are literally targeted at uh, bifidobacterium, which is just mind blowing. That means there's lineages of bifidobacterium being passed down and supported specifically from uh, mother to infant intergenerationally. So it's it's pretty wild stuff. Anyway, it's one of the most well-studied probiotics of all time. And what we found is that we not only materially increased uh, bifidobacterium, but we increased multiple varieties of bifidobacterium. And we saw that in every single outcome. And that's called a a first order outcome because basically we're just saying, okay, we have the system, i.e. the microbiome. And are we seeing a shift in that system that should be correlated with some, with a positive outcome? So that and the answer would be uh, indisputable, yes, at least in the context of these trials. The second order outcome we were looking to track is something called short chain fatty acids. Um, short chain fatty acids are really versatile, amazing molecules that a healthy uh, microbiome should be producing a good quantity of. Butyrate and propionate were two kind of mains that we tracked, but we actually tracked like I think we tracked four different varieties, and we again saw um, that. Uh, people who are these, you know, these, these donors that were exposed to uh, Ollie Pop had material increases in multiple varieties of short chain fatty acids. It's kind of a disproportionate uptake on butyrate. So that's awesome. awesome. I mean, it's, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. Um, and I, real and, quick, and, I want to tell everyone listening because I'm, I have a can right here, just like what you're talking about when you say botanicals. Because for me, I, mm-hmm. and I'm assuming this is what's in Ollie Smart, right? Yeah. Okay. So you have chicory root, Jerusalem artichoke, kudzu root. Am I saying that right? Yes, you are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cassava flower, cassava syrup, marshmallow root, slippery elm bark, cactus, and calendula flower. That's the Ollie Smart blend. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Now, I have yeah, a question so the, for you. Oh, yeah. So go ahead. Go ahead. Well, just the, the, the cassava, the chicory, and the Jerusalem are all kind of more standard fiber and prebiotic suppliers. And then the kudzu, nopal cactus, a slippery elm, marshmallow, calendula. Um, some of those ingredients do have prebiotics in them. There's different polysaccharides and, and actually kudzu has some res- resistant starches, but then they also have other ingredients which have been historically included in kind of, di- you know, digestive health remedies, yeah. I guess the way to describe it. Slippery elm's like a laxative, isn't it? Or thought of as a laxative? I mean, the dose is what's always important here. Okay. Yeah. I was going to so, say, like, I'm just curious, like my general question for you too is like, okay, Real quick, this team at Primal Kitchen, I, I ran marketing for a brand called Kavita. I'm sure you're familiar with because of the yeah. kombucha space, right? So they were like the number two player to GT's kombucha. And, you know, it's basically a water kefir as it was. Now it's a kombucha. But um, 
when we launched Kavita, people like had a noticeable effect on their like bowel movements from drinking one Kavita. Over time, I think as production changed, like that went down. I'm curious what the like personal digestive effects are of Olipop. Anecdotally, I know this probably isn't in the clinical trials right now, but like, are if, is this going to like keep people regular? Like, are they going to notice anything? What's the scoop? <laughs> I mean, you know that we obviously have limitations around linking specific health outcomes to our our product, especially if we don't have FDA approval yeah, around them. Of course. Um, and you know what I can talk about with a slightly more ease is, um, you know what we what the mechanics of the product. I, I will say that uh, our sales numbers uh, are not are not reflective of a brand that uh, involves a, a large percentage <laughs> of our consumers having a negative experience. Um, the other thing I will say is, you know, there is a, so this, well, is I don't a think that set. would be negative. I feel like everyone likes to poop. So like, I think right. that's like a huge problem and fiber is like a contributing factor. So I'm just curious if like some of these things were targeted to like help keep things moving or if that was like, not, it's more about, it's more about diversity of the microbiome. And no, just I mean, the whole, every, strains. Look, our our goal, I mean, and again, I'll kind of zoom up to the ingredient like broader level here, but our certainly when you look at what you would expect to be the contribution of fiber, enhanced fiber and uh, prebiotics, and then in this case, also botanicals, somebody's diet, you would expect to see a myriad of, of positive outcomes. So one of that, one of those outcomes is, is staying regular. You know, another aspect of that is supporting your microbiome and all the different things that that does. Uh, another aspect of that you'd be expecting to see would be uh, actually metabolic assistance. So stabilization of, of blood sugar, you would expect to see even uh, support uh, for kind of healthy liver functioning because, you know, uh, when you consume, and this is like getting on, onto the kind of traditional soda side, when you consume super high sugar foods and beverages that have no fiber, um, there's this little kind of compartment between your your stomach and your, your small intestines called the duodenum and so all the food gets broken down in your stomach and it passes through the duodenum and then it goes into your intestines um and the duodenum is right next to your liver so if you have some fiber in your food it actually puts a little wall up around your duodenum while you're digesting and it keeps uh the materials that you're digesting from leaking out uh but when you have no fiber and you have really high amounts of sugar that sugar can pass through the duodenum wall go right into the liver uh, which can actually contribute to fat accumulation around the liver, which is super toxic and can actually lead to something called fatty liver disease. So uh, without kind of breaking it down, this is what Olipop does or doesn't do just because of reg regulations around what we can say. Those are some of the things that you would expect to see from the inclusion of these kind of uh, ingredients and certainly things that we're uh, targeting for, uh, for in terms of uh, customer experience. Makes sense. It's cool, you know, because I feel like a lot of the beverage innovation on the market today is like the at least the beverages that are claiming like a fiber claim, like buy, right? We all know buy, or maybe people don't, but it they they it's just like an, an obscene amount of sugar alcohols. And I think it's like a joke, even with well, speaking food. of laxatives, right? Those yeah, actually and digestive really, distress. Yeah. I mean, yeah. bad. Yeah. David, did you drink soda before you guys founded Olipop or like what's been your health journey as it relates to this beverage? Yeah, I certainly remember, I mean, you know, soda is a category with 97% household penetration. So I, I think on any given day in the US, you know, there's 50% of adults drink a, you know, fizzy sugar sweetened beverage. So most of us do have an experience with, with soda and 
most often it's a pretty positive one. Um, yeah, I remember you know playing soccer and and then you know getting a can, cold can out of the uh, vending machine at, at lunchtime at school. It tasted like liquid gold. But yeah, yeah, you know, the, the issue over the years is that um, you know we we've kind of understood that it's it's really not good for us at all. And so you had this kind of um, you know conundrum where you got this product that tastes amazing. You know. It's, deeply ingrained in our social and cultural fabric. Um, you know, we have lots of positive memories and associations with, um, you know, companies like Coca-Cola have done an amazing job of kind of associating with every season, you know, summertime, it's time for a Coke. It's like put it out of the cold, you know, ice bucket and, and drink it out of a glass bottle. Holiday time, well, it's polar bears, it's time for a Coke again. It's like every season. So, um, you know, it really talks to the way that we've approached the concept and the way that BAM formulated the product initially as well, which is to, you know, meet consumers where they are and, say, and you know, approach this with some empathy for, you know, the, the, an acknowledgement of the situation, which is you know, there's a highly addictive product out there that, um, you know, it's cheap, it's delicious, you know, as I say, you know, resonates um, very deeply in, in a cultural and, and, and emotional sense for people. And so rather than saying, hey, you know, you're an idiot for doing this and you should go and get a kale juice instead, um, you know, we're saying, look, we, we get it. Soda's delicious. It's refreshing. It's fun. And, you know, we like soda too. So we made a healthy one. Um, try this one instead. And we've really aimed, you know, saying that in the way that Ben's developed the, the product itself um, through to, you know, the packaging and marketing to not take anything away from that experience. And there is a very rich, uh, very kind of rich uh, cultural um, reservoir to pull on which, you know, is sometimes difficult for natural products brands, um, you know, because that doesn't exist. Like, you know, when GTs was developing the kombucha category the first time, that had to be, you know, an incredible achievement to, you know, build that whole category from scratch. There was no sort of association to latch onto, you know, it took over a decade. Um, for us, we're just kind of tapping into that, um, the, the, uh, the emotional reservoir of soda um, not shaming people, actually kind of leaning into that and, and using that as a vehicle to, you know, encourage people to consume what is, you know, as you've heard from Ben, a very sophisticated, um, you know, health supplement that's in the form of the soda. So that's really kind of the marriage of Ben and my skill sets. Um, you know, I sort of cut my teeth marketing products like Smirnoff Vodka, which is defined, you know, there's vodka category as a colorless, odorless, tasteless spirit. So, by definition, it is undifferentiated. It's all marketing. And then, you know, the, the kind of delta in what you're charging for one over the other is it can be, can be quite extreme at times. So, you know, for me, it was, okay, how do I apply some of the, you know, lessons of brand marketing that, that I've learned to help, you know, bring um, this vision that Ben has to, to people and remove the consumer friction. Um, so if you take like our packaging, for example, it kind of taps this idea of modern nostalgia. Um, it has, you know, very um, sort of clean, monochromatic aesthetic, something you sort of associate, you know, with kind of the Instagram generation. But then, you know, the flavor descriptor is a Windsor font. That was a font that was essentially retired um, before our design agency brought it back. And so combining those two things is what gives you the kind of sense of nostalgia within a, a kind of modern setting um, and really talks to our positioning around new kind of soda. I mean, our, our goal here is to, um, you know, reframe the soda category for people and say, look, you know, um, 
soda is delicious it's refreshing it's fun it's about human connection but it can also be low sugar and it can also support your digestive health and and you know it's been a really interesting consumer journey we've been on with that yeah that's awesome i love it um and two grams of sugar per can is that consistent through the whole line only 35 calories it's two to five grams of sugar per can just depending on the flavor yeah I love it. Yeah. And I'm reading the ingredients statement here. It's like, I mean, mulled spices, ginger essence, pink rock salt, like just really some cool stuff. I don't know that there's really anything on the market that's like this. I am not a soda drinker, as you can imagine. Um, but I think that's just like really cool. And I would be fine with my kids drinking something like this, which I think is like a big, you know, issue we're all facing. I feel like it's very um, similarly positioned to Primal Kitchen, right? Like we launched mayonnaise, you know, seed oils and sugar, especially drinkable sugar is like, that's like public enemy number one. I mean, that's like just horrendous, like horrible right. for your health on so many different levels. So it's cool to see some serious innovation happening here. How has the consumer response been? Like, what's it been like from the marketing side, David? Like, How's it? Yeah, I mean, just talking quickly to your prior point as well, um, you know, on a personal note, uh, you know, our eldest son suffers from ADHD and anxiety. And so, you know, controlling his diet is is really important part of, you know, how, how we manage things for him. Um, you know, we have a lot of, um, you know, Primal Kitchen products in the house for that reason. Um, you know, as is kind of typical with kids of that nature, has a candida issue as well that, you know, yep. leads to a very kind of sweet tooth. Um, so you kind of constantly fighting this battle between, you know, wanting, you know, kind of typical mainstream par- products like mayonnaise, ketchup, like everyone else does, um, but having a real issue with kind of added sugar and dyes. Um, so, you know, it's awesome now to have the range of products that just simply weren't available, you know, a decade ago, maybe if you went back five years ago. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of really meaningful. And um, yeah, our son like loves Olipop. <laughs> you know, it's great to be able to, I speak to a lot of parents that, you know, it's so hard, isn't it? Where you have to say no to so many things. It's it's very hard, you know, coming from Europe um, to the US, it, you know, I found it really difficult to kind of avoid sugar. It's, you know, it's included in a lot of like buying some bread and I was like, hold on, there's yeah. five grams of sugar and one of these slices of bread. That's just, why are you putting sugar in this? It's crazy. So um but yeah, the, the broad consumer response, I think, um, I mean, the velocities have been incredible. Like we, um, you know, past, um, you know, your brand, um, Kavita now in, in uh, major retailers like Fresh Time um, within two and a half years of market. And I think, you know, we really, and, you know, these are all great selling brands in the digestive yeah. health space. The difference being that, you know, we are in the soda category and that's a $40 billion category. So if you effectively map over it, there is just more occasions, you know, there's more occasions for soda. So um, what we're seeing is um, we're seeing like, you know, heavy soda consumers um, perhaps swapping out, you know, two of a five in a day or, or whatever it may be. We're seeing, you know, lighter um, soda consumers perhaps switch all of their, um, soda consumption to Olipop. They're like, look, I just, you know, sparkling water doesn't cut it or whatever. I need something kind of scratches that kind of itch for something sweet and delicious. And, you know, sometimes they're going from like a diet Coke to our strawberry vanilla, you know, not even the vintage cola. It's just like something that yeah. kind of, you know, the pop of the can, the, you know, the, the experience of that kind of sweet flavor and fizz. Um, and then there's lapsed consumers as well that simply had 
gone, you know, love soda, but have gone out of the category because um, it's just, you know, they said, look, I understand this is not good for me. So I'm going to kind of try and find other substitutes, you know, now able to enjoy, you know, whatever root beer every now and again, and, um, you know, and do something really beneficial for the health at the same time. So often, you know, there's a couple of lessons I learned, particularly from my Diageo days in terms of, you know, launching and failing with a lot of products, but, um, you know, one, uh, is around break one rule and break it really hard and keep everything else the same. Um, because it gets confusing for people. They're like, what is this? How am I supposed to use it? Um, so for us, like, you know, you look at brands like, you know, Hello Top, Beyond Me, similar thing. If you look at that pattern, right, everything is the same, um, apart from one rule that they broke. Um, you know, Hello Top really understood that, ice cream is about indulgence. So it's like gold packaging, indulgent flavors. You know, if you don't do indulgence, it doesn't matter if you've got five calories or 5,000, like yeah. no one's going to, going to drink it. Um, you know, seed lip and in, in non-alc spirits. Um, yeah. The first non-alc is alternative, I think. Seed lip. Yeah. Incredible brand, really cool founder there. Um, they actually, you know, sold to Diage now, but they really pioneered the non-alc space because mm-hmm. for a while, non-out was really about compromise which yeah. is like death in the in the uh, you know spirits category because you know spirits occasions are all about special you know and so if it's compromised it's not special if it's not special it's not meeting the consumer need in that occasion so you know they design incredible packaging they you know awesome cocktails they're listed at some of the top bars in the world product photography is incredible it's like you know there's a story behind it um and so for us, um, you know, there's a challenge for a while there of like, we need to, you know, for the first year, I, I banned our marketing team from even really addressing any of the functional aspects of the product and said, we just have to learn how to behave like a soda, which is challenging for a natural products brand in our space, where often the focus is on, you know, a farm that the product was grown on or, you know, um, you know, a, a particular ingredient or the founder's story or whatever, Um and so for us, it was really disruptive to kind of behave like um, behave like a soda. Um, so we started doing things like um, doing ice cream floats. We had, you know, initially we were like, I don't know, do we do this or not? It's not exactly healthy. Um, but we're like, look, people are doing it. <laughs> They're making ice cream floats. So, you know, if they substitute a can of Coke for a can of vintage cola, then that, that's probably a good substitute. And yeah. so, um, you know, I think gave permission then saw kind of, kombucha brands and stuff going into that space too and starting to break down the wall a little bit between the natural products industry and, and mainstream consumers because you know ultimately um you know the the reason that people buy into oreos coke and any sorts of products isn't because of a particular ingredient or you know a, a farm that it was grown on is because of the way that those products make people feel so um for us it's been really important to um, you know, establish that emotional connection with consumers, particularly in a category like soda, which has high degree of emotional engagement. Um, it's something you carry around in your hand. Um, you know, and as I say, like sort of a decade of spirits marketing, where that, that's kind of pretty key to success um, in those categories has been kind of useful for us. And we've applied some of those, um, you know, uh, ideas and principles to how we've approached Olipop. So cool. I love it. What other marketing tidbits do you have for us? Any other good um, nuggets? I like that one. Primal, very much similar story there too. Like 
we just disrupted the oil and tried not to like go too crazy with flavors. We're like, this is enough. We've got enough of a big change going on here to communicate, but yeah. What else? Yeah, you're exactly right. I think, I think it works really well for that reason. You know what you're getting as a consumer. So yeah, um, yeah I mean, I think, um, you know, it's, it's uh, a very difficult discipline, probably the the hardest, you know, department within an organization because yeah, it's it's challenging to get, you know, it's it's hard to know when you've been successful or not been successful. You know, you know from sales, you can see the sales go up and down, you know, in supply chain because the thing is delivered on time or not, or you know, so um, but um yeah, certainly um some of that discipline around the concept um up to now has been important. And um then you know, the I mean digital has been kind of very interesting development as a you know kind of two decades long cpg marketer of sorts um it's fascinating now the kind of level of data and analysis and direct connection with the consumer because you know go back to my diageo days which ended 10 years ago um you know you would sell to distributors sell to a retailer yeah. sell to a consumer you have no idea who you're selling to i mean you could go and do expensive studies we did plenty of them and, and used probably a fraction of that that yeah. information but um you know it's the nothing really kind of compares to that direct you know we've got a cx team now that can yeah you know, talk to people and get direct feedback we can see the impact of our you know messages when we put them on you know social media advertising or whatever and, and you know i think it's allowed us to spend materially more money than, than we would have done, um, you know, without a DTC business that was kind of built through the pandemic. Um, it went from, you know, kind of 5% of the business, um, you know, pre-pandemic to, you know, close to 30% now. And, and we grew by a thousand percent overall wow. through that, through that pandemic year. So, um, you know, that, that's, um, you know, really interesting errors as well, I think. And, um, you know, certainly, I mean, marketing is a really good way to burn a lot of cash very quickly in the startup <laughs> business um, yeah. and not see any results. I mean, you know, yeah. you can easily do a $5 million outdoor campaign and, you know, it feels like a drop in the ocean and you crush your fingers. And, you know, if the sales don't come through three months later, you're then slashing a bunch of stuff from your budget. So, um, yeah, that, that's been a really interesting development as well, I would say, in the space. Very cool. Hey, Ben, quick question. You mentioned earlier you had like a pretty significant like weight loss story, right? Like what were the key, what'd you do there? What were the keys to the success on turning around the diet? Yeah. I mean, that one wasn't like terribly complex. It was just, uh, you know, I, I grew up, like I said, eating a standard American diet. Um, you know, there's a big relationship between emotions and and things that are addictive including addictive foods which uh, you know a lot of the, in fact it's you know on the topic of sugar just to like tan go on a tangent with your question but you know there's people hear about um you know these studies where they'll give rats cocaine and heroin and also expose them to sugar and then uh you know they find ultimately that the sugar is more addicting than these drugs but, you know, a piece of research that I was reading like a month ago, super, super interesting, is the environment that they had the rats in actually had a really meaningful impact on uh, their ability to, uh, or their desire to stay on whatever the addictive substance was, whether it was uh, kind of a narcotic or, or sugar, you could probably argue sugar is narcotic. So, and a, and a lot of people have that experience, like when, you know, the kind of mental health 
crisis is direct is goes hand in hand with the physiological health and the food consumption health crisis, and then they end up reinforcing each other. So, you know, that was a part of it as well. You know, just being not in an emotionally great space, certain parts in my childhood and adolescence leading to, you know, an acceleration of uh, of poor eating habits, which then <laughs> generated a bunch of weight gain. Um, so, you know, it took a an atypical kind of um, self-driven turnaround uh, to, to bring a tremendous amount of discipline to uh, calorie cutting, picking up exercising. It also took addressing my psychological health. I mean, I got into therapy in high school. Um, you know, I've been in and out of therapy for 20 years. I've got 30 books or more on psychology on my, on my bookshelf. And it's actually a big part of how we build uh, the culture and how we interact with people uh, in the team. But uh, yeah, the mechanics of it aren't terribly difficult. What I love is- how you're like, it's not that complex, just like emotions and therapy. I'm like, dude, it's there's nothing treatment. more complex than human emotions. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, this is why I try to give the team breakdowns of this is your neocortex and this is your limbic system. This is what they do. Wait, what uh, are your because- favorite psychology books that are on the shelf? Like what were the most impactful ones? Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of good ones. Um, there's a phenomenal book on trauma called Body Keeps the Score. Oh, this is like uh, the fourth time I've heard about this book in the last oh, month. Oh, it's a it's it's groundbreaking. There's some other there's some other good ones like Trauma and Recovery is another great book. Um, on the topic of relationship, I really like Sue Johnson's work uh, and John Gottman's work. So um, Sue that. Johnson wrote uh, Hold Me Tight. She basically invented like attachment based therapy and attachment theory in general. Uh, I mean, I have like, ironically, I literally have a textbook on emotion, <laughs> on emotions, which is like really useful. Um, and, you know, there's some on the on more of the business side, um, Harvard Business Study does some cool book, does did a cool uh, recap on kind of EQ. And then uh, what's the other one? There's like a, what's that one I had the whole team read, David? It's like a working working with emotional intelligence, something like that. It's, these are all- Emotional like intelligence 2.0, is it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because basically it's just like, yeah, you do have to learn how to work with your own, especially as an entrepreneur, you have to learn how to work with your emotions constantly. When I, you know, think about the stuff that uh, would have totally, that I deal with, you know, Dave and I both deal with. David's more emotionally stable than I am. It's like a intrinsic uh, kind of human kind of, psychological makeup, but I think about the things that would have uh, totally dysregulated me five years ago that I now deal with on a very regular basis. You know, your ability to kind of manage stress and address your psychology uh, is a much, much larger factor of your success uh, than any kind of particular skill set. And it's, and it, and they're, they're, the research really pairs out well on that as well, in terms of when they look at people in leadership positions uh, or manager positions or people leading teams, you know, you start getting up to the upper echelon in a department and, and 80 to 90% of the success outcomes um, can be directly tied to EQ. And actually, David, you just posted an interesting article based on some research that empathy was actually, they were finding kind of the most, if not the most, one of the most important uh, traits of successful leaders, which, you know, really stands in contrast to the oftentimes like, pretty robotic sociopathic system that are that's rolled out in a lot of the corporate uh corporate united states which oh by the way makes everybody working in those businesses miserable and then oh by the way creates worse outcomes and worse customer experiences um etc cetera, etc cetera. so like yeah i mean that is kind of the bigger the bigger takeaway is if you are but i think the other piece of it as well is like 
I recognize what that took for me. I also recognize that I am an empirically atypical person. Um, and like literally I've had my brain scanned. It functions really strangely. So, and that shouldn't be what, like neurofeedback. Uh, yeah. 16 channel EGG, just like okay. standard kind of mapping brainwave, brainwave function. Um, I yeah, have I've done really that weird... too. And mine was odd too. I've also been in therapy for like whatever, 15 years. I love therapy. I think yeah. EMDR guys go get it. Uh, but, uh, but what, what was odd about your brainwave? I think it was like equally on like whatever, both sides or something like that. And she was like, Oh, I don't know. Oh, hemispheric. Yeah. Behavior. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And also something about, uh, ability to focus better with my eyes, closing my eyes open or something like that. Mm. Where like, I don't know. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. They do an eyes open and an eyes closed session to try to get a more comprehensive map. So is that neurofeedback or is this a different brain scan? So that is a, that, that scan that is you oftentimes did. used as part of a neurofeedback okay. prep process. Um, but it isn't unto itself. I mean, I guess it is a form of neurofeedback because they're, they're tracking your, your brain waves. David, uh, did you do it too or no? Is this just no. a only? What I do on my free time. Okay. <laughs> you didn't make the whole team do the brain scan is what you're telling me. They just had to read the That's book. right. Yeah. No, it's expensive okay. too. I mean, to pay, pay a, a neuroscientist to go over your brain scan results with you is, is not cheap. And I'm, I'm privileged to have been able to do that. But uh, I guess my point is that, you know, part of the empathy that I have facilitated for kind of the experience that many different people in this country go through, especially when people start interacting with products that are literally designed from the ground up to be as hyper addicting as possible. Um, it's going to be incredibly unrealistic. Like I, I made this decision to shift my life around, you know, when I was still in high school, um, if you suddenly like in your thirties or forties and now you've got kids and a job and a mortgage, the kind of, uh, the effort, on that is going to be extraordinary. And most people are typically going to really struggle to make that transition anyway. Um, so part of the goal behind Olipop is to say, yeah, it's all good. We get that you've been handed a bunch of deep nostalgia. We get that you've been handed a bunch of addictive products. Um, let's go ahead and make that that bridge uh, substantially easier to, to engage with and kind of move things along. You know, one of the one of the like stories that uh, popped in my head is David was talking actually about kind of emotional resonance and nostalgia with consumers is this, and this thing absolutely, you know, was an absolute tearjerker, but we got a letter in from a customer who, uh, you know, her grandmother had stage four cancer and was in hospice. And because of the nature of her can cancer, she couldn't eat or drink really anything without it causing her excruciating uh, pain, but somehow she could have Olipop. Mm -hmm. um, and when she was growing up, uh, root beer was her favorite thing in the whole world. And so, you know, this, uh, you know, amazing family wrote into us and said, like, we used to bring her an Olipop, uh, root beer Olipop every day. And it's the only time I saw her smile, you know, in the la in her last couple of months. And it's like, and we obviously sorted them out with a bunch of free product. And after we finished mopping the floor up from all of our tears, but the, you know, the base point is that the, uh, the resonance, the, the, the deep roots that, uh, you know, soda has successfully deployed into the American psyche is nothing to be scoffed, scoffed at. Um, and it's, you know, it goes really, really deep, right? We used to have, you know, soda fountains and pharmacies going back like 150 years. Um, so it's got a very, very deep uh, history in the United States. And, and this, and it was originally kind of heralded as a, as a health product, although a lot of that was actually pretty dubious. So we're kind of trying to take 
take that original intent and uh, re- re-deliver it in a, in a modern way. I love it. Um, okay. I have a very serious question for you, David. Are you watching Ted Lasso? You know, I haven't watched Ted Lasso yet. Um, what I the am on hell? My, I know Come my, uh, I know my, what my WhatsApp group is, uh, is talking about Ted Lasso. I remember back in the day, the, um, my, I have a six-year-old and a seven-year-old, so my, uh, viewing time is fairly limited so far. I have prioritized uh, actual football highlights, but okay. it's good good reminder. Okay, well, then this is my question. Lasso, my yeah. I'm watching Ted Lasso and I want to be a soccer yep. fan now, a football fan, if you will. Um, yep. I need a team, man. So like, who should I be? Oh, David for? will sort you out with that. I need a yeah, team. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of myths around the, the best teams in England. You might hear rumors of like Manchester United. Or yeah, Liverpool. I don't want the best team. Just, I want like the team. Just ignore ignore those rumors okay. because mm-hmm. the best team in England is called Everton. Everton. Um, okay. They play in blue. I think they color, you know. Elton John amazingly. does or does not own this team. Elton John does not own this team. Not Elton John's team. No, that's Watford. Okay. Watford, yeah. I just finished um, his autobiography, which was excellent. And I thought that was great that he bought a yeah. Everton. Okay. If yeah, if you send me size, I'll get I'll get your shirt. So. Okay, great. Stepping into uh, very serious territory here, Morgan. This well, this good. also, I mean, the show really ties in with like the whole EQ thing about being in like a management position and just leadership styles and the whole thing. I think oftentimes I'm like, man, you really need a Ted Lasso and a Roy Kent. Uh, you need both. Like sometimes I think like someone really direct and someone just really optimistic and nice, or you need to have both of those things within you in order to really like motivate people. Um, okay, Ben, what other things besides microbiome and neurofeedback, like what other quantified self health hacking things are you doing that our listeners should know about? I mean, my team's going to love this because I seem to somehow sneak this into almost every podcast. But I mean, one thing that I'm very excited uh, and fingers crossed, I get this like in my house soon, um, which I'm a massive fan of is what I call thermal cycling, Uh, not bicycling, but thermal cycling is in going from very hot to very cold. So basically saunas and cold plunges. Um, I like I (laughs) I want to do it every day. I mean, for what what I really, you know, and I actually gave the team like a, you know, we, we actually rolled out a very cool program recently, uh, which I'm calling the our, a personal development stipend. So we've got these three buckets, physical health, which is going to the gym. It's different kind of you know, training courses people might want to take, a couple different like things around like physiological health, mental health, which is therapy, neurofeedback, meditation sport, and then personal enrichment, which is classes and this big book list that I put together. Um, so we're actually, we have this bucket, we have this bucket, it's use it or lose it. Um, and as a part of rolling that out for the team, I give this like 90 minute presentation, well, they probably hated me for it, to be honest. but I give this like 90 minute presentation on what are the actual biomechanics of the, the mind body connection. Cause everybody's always going on about mind body connection, but yeah, there's yeah. actually like a system that drives that it's called the nervous system. Like, mm-hmm. and it actually does operate in accordance with certain mechanics. And so um, you know, my hope was that because this is more or less like a mind body stipend to like get everybody up to kind of speed on different ways they can utilize it that, you know, basically it's like nervous system health is the bigger the distance between how deeply you can go into your parasympathetic system and how deeply you can go into your sympathetic system. The deeper you can go into both one of those, the more space and flexibility that the nervous system has, and usually the more robust the health, but the nervous system is like the driver of, you know, really like 
substantial underlying driver is how you feel, the energy you have, how stressed you feel, things of that nature. So that's the thing in addition to whatever the whole, you know, uh, you get extra cellular and tissue osmosis through thermal cycling. But what I find it to be really useful for is actually nervous system management because I'm really pushing these two different extremes and forcing my body to rapidly adapt from one thing to another. And it, it is massively helpful for me to regulate my nervous system. Love it. Yeah. Rhonda Patrick's big on that sauna thing. And I've Laird Hamilton's good. Mark's big. Marco's in the, he had a pool in Malibu that wasn't heated and then a hot tub right next to it. And he would do like hot tub pool, hot tub pool before bed, like every night. It's big. Yeah. Yeah. I like to do like 220 degree sauna at for as long as I can take it, like 30, sometimes this is going to sound implausible, but it it is true up to 45 minutes and then jump in like 42 degree weather or it's 42 degree pool and sit there for, I mean, my max time was like eight or nine minutes, but just to really go between the extremes. It's crazy. It's a game. It's a total game changer. That's some intermittent fasting stuff, regular exercise, uh, some good supplementation that kind of rounds it out. And then generalized emotional health, I think. Love those it. Are, those Great. are like your big, your big pieces. Yeah. David, what are you guys doing or what have you found to be really impactful? Maybe for you or for your son, you mentioned anxiety. Um, any like big tips there, big aha moments or things that were really game changers for you guys in that journey with anxiety? In particular? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting um, because, you know, we have two kids who are very different that we parent you know, with the same parents. And so you see is naive sort of thing is you go become a parent. You're like, yeah, I think my kids are going to behave this way because I'm going to be a good parent. I'm just going to tell them what to do. And then, you know, um, and then you realize it doesn't necessarily work out that way. And, um, you know, uh, and so, you know, I think it's, it's really been a you know journey for me candidly in terms of, you know, a getting some humility ar- around that and, and sort of then really understanding, you know, a son and what he's going through and, and kind of, you know, the, the challenges that he's facing as well, like, you know, and his ability to regulate and, you know, navigate life and things. And um, so we went on a bit of a path, I have to say, um, props to my wife, who's done most of the research around this. It doesn't always seem to be, um, the mother that, that does my research, I don't know why that is, is the case. Um, but that would be our family had, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my yeah. wife had the foresight to look into it, you know, and um, I'm like sort of a bit more short-sighted kind of hacking through on a day-to-day basis. Like how do I help stabilize and support? Um, but you know, she put hours of research into it. So we started with diet. And so removing things like gluten was material impact, um, which you did sort of like full blood panel and everything to find, sensitivities around stuff and so you know it's kind of challenging you have to then modify the diet but gluten has been a big one dairy pretty material as well um you know if if james has gluten we we notice within like a couple of hours you see the, you see the difference in change behavior um what's uh you know another interesting thing um we have uh stumbled across which this isn't kind of a recommendation or whatever. We're just starting to explore it ourselves. It might be interesting. If you else want to check it out, is the Welsh pro- protocol. And it oh, looks yeah. at kind of, yeah, sort of, um, you know, the, the the chemistry of the brain and saying like, you know, um, certain things, you know, with, with arson, for example, um, certain terms like overmethylation or, um, 
you know, copper overload um, in the brain. So, you know, that can be addressed through supplementation directly. So we're working on that now, like a zinc supplement. Um, we haven't sort of re-begun in, in full on the protocol, so I can't talk. And you said it's called the efficacy. Walsh protocol? Walsh the protocol, wall? yeah. Walsh, this is different yeah. from walls. This is walls or not walls? Uh, different from that, okay. I think. But but essentially, you know, what I like about, um, you know, um, the the uh, doctor that we're working with is it takes a true holistic approach. Often it's, div- you know, not necessarily opposed to, um, you know, medication, but often it's, it's masking, um, you know, symptoms, but not addressing an underlying issue. Um, you know, that kind of chemical imbalance in the brain, as, as I understand it, um, you know, it supports kind of neurotransmission and stuff. So, you know, when those things are off, um, it can cause, everything from, you know, kind of depression to, you know, an inability to concentrate all the issues that you see associated with ADHD. But I think there's no kind of silver bullet. Um, we find it's just like a lot of hard work across a lot of things, you know, having to lean in as a parent, develop empathy, um, you know, different, different way of parenting. Certainly, you know, for anyone listening that has a kid suffering from anxiety or ADHD, the sort of like, you know, punishment method of parenting that, I grew up with to a degree, which is, you know, fairly mild, but it's like, you do this, I take this thing away, um, really does not work, um, you know, uh, for kids with essentially you have, um, low, um, uh, sort of dopamine. So you need kind of incentive. It's like, Hey, do this and get that. Um, Got it. you know, so it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, an interesting journey is you open up, you find there's lots of, you know, it feels like a unique thing to you. You're kind of struggling. And then you see there's a lot of people, um, you know, working through the same issues and, you know, it can create a lot of challenges, um, create challenges in your, you know, marriage and relationship. You're trying to deal with this on a day-to-day yeah. basis, you know? And so wow. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of work and I have a lot of kind of sympathy, empathy for, for parents and, and kids going through it as well. But I think there's, you know, sort of, better solutions coming down the line. And for us, it's amazing to see, you know, products like, you know, Primal Kitchen that we use, you know, Onipo, we have in house, Lesser Evil is, is a great one that we rely yeah. on a lot. Um, yeah, having a lot of kind of different snacks and things that, you know, kids want to eat snacks or their friends are too. Smart Sweets is is awesome, you know, high fiber, low sugar alternatives. Um, so it's it's really cool to see the the range of options now, you know, for, for in situations where you have to modify diet. I love it. That's awesome. Okay. But one last question for both of you. It's the same question. What is something most people don't know about you? So Ben, I'll let you go first. Oh my God. What is something that most people don't know about me? I am like, you know, bizarrely, uh, perhaps even overly transparent. (laughs) So that is a great and and probably anything that people don't know about me there's a reason why i don't want them to know about me um (laughs) yeah i don't know i mean i think um you know i think that people don't quite know how to interpret me often um you know i think that you know for example like I'll, i'll get on team calls or i'll get involved with discussions like I will go to uh, kind of extensive lengths to like light the mood and make jokes. And, you know, I actually had a team member the other day. I finally got an executive assistant, which I'm incredibly excited about. She just started today. Yes. Uh, But, uh, 
but I was talking about it on a team call and, and what a very new hire to the team was like, Oh yeah, well, good luck to your executive assistant. Cause you'll just be like, Oh, I don't feel like going to a meeting. Ha <laughs> ha. I'm like, is that really how I'm coming off? Because <laughs> the reality is that I am actually such an intense person. It, I, it's so, I'm so intense. Like it's exhausting for me. Um, and what I actually do is I put a massive amount of effort into creating a buffer between my real intensity and, and other people having to deal with that. Um, and I think, you know, as a result, it can kind of, you know, make me come off a bit more slapstick. I'm also a massive fan of absurdity. I'm probably like an absurdist existentialist in certain ways. So, uh, yeah. So I think that maybe there's, um, a differential sometimes between how I come off, which I'm actually doing on purpose and, you know, the kind of actual system that kind of runs me along. I love it. This is great. Yeah. You also signed to an electronic music label for a while, Ben. Is that right? Well, I did release an album. Yeah, I mean, I do. I also DJ. I've been at the, I mean, people probably would know because I talked about the raves and the warehouse parties, but I've been DJing for 15 years. I have uh, an electronic music website, which I have like no time to manage correctly for obvious reasons. But uh, yeah, then I released, I have a music studio and I, yeah, that was a very obvious, easy answer, but I love that you went with like this existential crisis you're having between your intensity and how it presents in the world and how you manage that on just a day-to-day basis to keep those around. Well, the thing is I don't keep, I don't keep that. I don't really, I can that. relate. Like, I can totally relate. LinkedIn, but I yeah. I like effect, swear so. a lot. I hug people. I try to like keep it light and there is definitely like a lot of intensity there. So I, I really appreciate that insight. I think I learned something about myself today. All right, yeah. David. <laughs> And David's over here, like Captain Obvious, like, "Hey, man, you could have just gone with the, uh, <laughs> just gone with the DJ route." Well, yeah, I mean, Ben and I did initially <laughs> connect around music quite a lot, um, yeah. solo music too. And I remember going on like our first field visit to New York, and Ben, instead of going to like Whole Foods, we're like trekking around Manhattan trying to find like a synth oh, yeah. store that uh, Ben wanted to get like a synth from. So we didn't yeah, see any stores, good. but we saw some really nice synths. Um, yeah, I, I used to play in band when I was growing up in the 90s. I played bass guitar and saxophone and played at the Cavern where the Beatles started their career. We actually played one gig with the Chilean Beatles who came over from Chile. Some of the best Beatles cover bands in Latin America because I don't think the Beatles ever toured there. So, um, awesome. yeah, we had, we had them over and played with them. So, yeah, that, that was fun. Very cool. Well, this was so fun, you guys. You have such an amazing story, and it seems like you've got quite a dynamic duo here, like a lot of uh, really good synchronicities. And I love the product. I don't really buy any beverages, and I will definitely be buying Olipop. I'm like super impressed with the ingredient statement and the macronutrient profile. So amazing work on the marketing, the branding, and the product development. Really impressive. Um, Why don't you guys let everyone know where can they find Olipop and where can they find you guys? <laughs> uh yeah it's, it's pretty straightforward so drink olipop o-l-i-p-o-p.com is our website we have direct consumer opportunities there we also have a store locator on the website so we're in about uh between six and seven thousand stores right now in the next six months that'll be going up substantially but you can go to our store locator on our website um and all of our social media handles are more or less drink Olipop and all the kind of assorted channels. And then I uh, abhor social media. So the only place you can find me is on LinkedIn, uh, which I also don't check in often enough. 
Got it. All right. Well, we'll have to have you back on the podcast to hear what you're up to in your own uh, health journey over there. Sounds That'd like- be the best way. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> cool. David, are you also hating social media and hiding only on LinkedIn with notifications turned yeah, off? Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I, I'm on Instagram as a millennial female, I think, based on the brands that I follow. Um, it. It's sort of a kind of uh, yeah, we're keeping keeping out from a work perspective, but uh, yeah, I, I'm on LinkedIn quite a lot actually. So cool. try and post as much as possible there. So boring middle aged man on LinkedIn, you can find me there. <laughs> awesome. Well, great. Thank you guys. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Thanks so Morgan. Much, Morgan.